Welcome to Know My Faith, my guest today, and I've been looking forward to this, Mottle Balliston. Welcome to uh, our podcast. Very good. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you with us. And I noticed there's a little bit of a delay there, so I'll try not to speak over you too much. Um, I was just saying, uh, before we started, you're getting ready for what's called Camp Shoshana, which is uh, Ariel Ministries' big teaching camp that's been running for, what, decades now? Yes, for over 45 years, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum and many other Messianic uh, Bible teachers have been teaching an intensive five-hour-a-day class schedule at the conference center. And we used to call it Camp Shoshana, but it was because it was quite primitive. But now it's become quite a, a nice conference center. We can accommodate upwards of 60 to 70 students. We can feed about uh, 120. And it's quite comfortable, fully air conditioned, some brand new uh, residences. And so the Lord has really provided a wonderful venue for, for really for Bible college level uh, teaching. That's, you know, after high school, after the 12th grade here in the U.S., you would go on to uh, an undergraduate program. And it really is that sort of quality. Yeah, I um, every time I, uh, well, I mean, recently ahead of this podcast, I've been looking at a few of your videos on YouTube uh, and reading bits and pieces. And, and every time I do that, and it's kind of hard for me to say this modestly because I'm not a modest person. I'm an arrogant person. But but I, I listen to what you're saying. I listen to what Arnold's saying. I go, wow, I never knew that. I never knew that. Um, and, I, you know, I'm going, oh, I've got to get over there to Camp Shoshana sometime. I've got to sit down with these guys. Because previously, the only times I'd had with you or with Arnold was like a brief 20 minutes in the radio studio when you were in, when you were in New Zealand. Right. Yes, yes. I remember being in Auckland with you in 2009 and we had a short interview as did arnold uh, and uh, i have many friends in new zealand and you will be pleased to know that one of the things that hung proudly in our dining room for many years was a map of new zealand with new zealand at the top of the map at the top yeah saying that these folks have turned the world upside down and that came to us from your friends mac and ally they they brought that right and uh, so we've had many, many students from New Zealand over the years who have been happy to spend uh, the weeks there while, while you're freezing down there in, in New Zealand. We have nice warm <laughs> weather. What is the biggest problem that we have with the, call it the whole Messianic or Jewish roots understanding? To, to, the way I look at it, it's people that go overboard. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a fair observation. Uh, I trying to speak uh, carefully here. I would say that probably two thirds of messianic congregations, two thirds, in my experience, have really never come to terms with a basic truth, and that basic truth is that believers in Messiah Jesus today have been called to be saved by faith and to be sanctified, to go on in their walk by faith and not by law. We are saved by faith. We grow by obedience um, uh, to the teachings of Messiah as it's found in the Scripture, and it is a confusion in the minds of many that they imagine that somehow Mosaic law makes one Jewish. 
And so the greatest confusion is not recognizing the foundational uh, truth of the Abrahamic covenant, whereas it's the Abrahamic covenant that continues on in perpetuity. It's in a permanent yes. covenant, whereas the Mosaic covenant, in contrast, was said to be for a time period. And we see that very clearly in Jeremiah 31. Um, I can be fully Jewish. I'm happy to be Jewish. I have four Jewish grandparents who were born in little shtetls in, in Europe in the, at the turn of the century. So 100% uh, Jewish, and I'm still 100% yeah. Jewish, not because I keep Mosaic law, because I don't do half the things that the rabbis tell me to do, because they're not even following the law. But I'm Jewish because yeah. of the eternal Abrahamic covenant. And if the Messianic movement simply understood that, they would be more confident in their identity. Uh, th that's the key word, model. That's the key word is identity. We find that in New Zealand, and you would have found that as well. Uh, and I hope that we've grown up a little bit, but we sling off at everybody, particularly the Australians. Uh, and to me, I think that is because we we are not comfortable or secure in our, our in our own identity. Uh, I also think that this is the reason why so many Christians don't witness to non-Christians is because they're not secure in their identity in Christ. Absolutely. I think that that's, that's a big issue. When you are confident and you understand that there is a reason for the hope within us, you have reason to tell others about it. And so with messianic identity, I think oftentimes you find people who are church hoppers habitual church hoppers, hop into the Messianic movement, hoping to find some fancy exotic identity. Uh, some of them even yeah. go so, going so far as pretending to be Jewish. Uh, very sadly, I've met a number of Gentile believers that I knew before they were in the Messianic movement. I knew that they weren't Jewish. All of a sudden, they start going to Messianic meetings, and they invent fake relatives. And that's sad because our identity is found in the person of Messiah Yeshua. Yeah, we can all come that's along. But it, it's, I think when you, when you discover it, and um, who was it? It was uh, Zohar Gonin, uh, who mm -hmm. works uh, a bit with us at Know My Faith and works with Celebrate Messiah. And I asked him this, and he said, he said from his point of view, we, we've obviously we've had 2,000 years of, of separation of the church, and Judaism, mm -hmm. and he says, he says to him, it's like when people discover the truth of our Jewish roots, they they just go too far in trying to make up for that two thousand years. I think that's a very good statement, and it is an insightful statement because all of a sudden they realize a lot of the truths that they have missed, the Jewish roots of the faith. They read particularly the gospel narratives with brand new eyes, because if you understand the Jewish background, you read yeah. through the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's, it's you know, a thousand percent Jewish, and you gain so much more, and then they go overboard. If a little bit of Jewish is, is good, then a whole lot of Jewish, a lot. <laughs> it must be better. But, the, but here's the issue. We're not here as believers to play synagogue. We're here to brightly reflect the light of Messiah into a dark world. 
And he did not make a mistake when some of us were born as Jews or some of us were born as Irish or Italian, even for those who were born as Aussies. Uh, you know, that's, yep. that's just how God chose to have them born. That's God's wonderful sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's this weird playoff, and, and I don't think juxtaposition is the right word. Um, God's principles. I remember Craig Hill. I don't know if you've ever come across him. He has a, yeah. a teaching called God's Principles of Finance. And he says that there are blessings um, to do with our finances that we find in the Bible. Um, not the way that they're taught by the prosperity uh, gospel yeah. people. But right. he said these are God's principles of finance. And so when you line yourself up with those principles, those blessings will flow. Um, there is, you know, when we do things God's way, the blessings flow. He says that right through with, with, with obeying the law. You know, it's not a salvation issue. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blessing versus curses issue. And so we look at things, and in particular, of course, the Shabbat, the Sabbath, and we go, okay, God blessed the seventh day. We know that Saturday, it's not Tuesday, it's not Wednesday. Uh, so if I take a break on the Sabbath, do I receive, not, I'm, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it legalistically because the law of Moses tells me I have to. I'm not even doing it because the Decalogue says, remember the Sabbath. But if I do it because I think, okay, this is something that God actually told, told you know, said, you know, take a Sabbath, take, take the Sabbath off and, and rest and mm -hmm. spend it with me. Am I getting blessed by that for doing so <laughs> as opposed to taking Sunday or Tuesday off? And so, so now I'm going, okay, well, what are some of the other laws that if I obey them, you know what I mean? Yes, it, it becomes a, uh, a sliding sort of uh, scale there where you do one thing and it's a slippery slope because what happens is the allure of these exotic new customs allows one to be transported to a new identity while not losing your basic salvation in Messiah. So people become, and this is really the word for it, they become enamored of the Jewish roots far more than being enamored of their relationship with Messiah. And uh, that's not that's a good, good thing, because the goal is not Jewishness. You know, you can, you can master all of the Jewish roots of the faith in this book. And, you know, I've sat under Arnold Fruchtenbaum's teaching now for 40 years. I haven't mastered it all, but I I know enough to teach others, and still I see people who may be aware of that, but if you are not reflecting the, the person of Messiah Yeshua, what good is it? You're, you're a clanging symbol, as the scriptures say. And so really, yeah. we need balance, and I think that there are a number of Messianic congregations that I'm aware of who I believe have achieved that balance. Um, it was my privilege to lead or to co-lead one of those congregations for 17 years here in the New York metro area, and there are dozens and dozens of others, but there's probably a good hundred or so right here in the U.S. who really, if you, if you talk to them, look at their websites, they never come right out and say that believers are not obligated to keep Mosaic law, which means that they're still confused about a basic doctrinal core issue in the New Testament scriptures. Yeah, 
And then we make that separation as well, and I'm not quite sure who I was reading this, and I think it was actually Fruchtenbaum the other day when I was reading, is we we we, we take the Ten Commandments as a separate <laughs> thing to the Mosaic Law, to the other 613, or the other 603. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see that? Are, are they, uh, you know, because we, we look at it, we go, these are the Ten Commandments. This is to everybody. The rest of the Mosaic Law was to the Jews or to the Israelites, but these ones are for everybody. It's very tempting to think that, but any Bible scholar reading the Hebrew would be forced to say that the the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, cannot be separated or teased out from the rest of Mosaic Law. They are part of it. Yet, at the same time, there is no denying that they held uh, a greater deal of attention in the minds of many people. So, how do we, as New Testament believers redeemed by God's grace, how do we tackle that? I think one of the answers is to recognize that all of the the ten all of the ten commandments are in one way, shape, or form repeated in some way by the instruction to the believers uh, in very specific ways, and then finally the command of Shabbat, the command of the Sabbath, we see addressed in the book of Hebrews, where we are told that we have now come not to a single day of Shabbat. We don't have, as believers, a day of Shabbat. Hebrews says we have entered into a permanent Sabbath rest in our relationship as sons and daughters of the living God of Israel. That's, yeah. that's my position. Yeah, Israel Harrell says that beautifully in his book, Enter the Rest, and, and that's, the, that's the whole point. Is, and I try and teach this when I'm speaking in churches and, and home groups, is, mm-hmm. is the whole point is this relationship that God wants with us, which he, he uses the marriage uh, to illustrate that, and he wants to bring us to that point, and Christ has done that for us. Amen. He's brought Excellent. us to that point. Well, the Abrahamic Covenant is really foundational to understanding all of these things. It's The Abrahamic Covenant is foundational even to understanding the Jewish holy days. And believe it or not, the Abrahamic Covenant, uh, which is the, the a big covenant in, in Genesis chapter 12, believe it or not, the Abrahamic Covenant is foundational to understanding Christmas. We'll get to that in a minute because I just uh, there was something that you said um, uh, on a video I watched last night that without Hanukkah there would be no Christmas. But l- let's talk about the feasts. Uh, w- what's your view on on us goyim celebrating the feasts? I think we have examples, uh, individuals such as Ruth and others, who completely identified with Am Yisrael, with the people of Israel, and. I, we have no other way to think then that she was involved with those feasts. But here's the key difference. She was not involved with them in an obligatory way. She was doing it voluntarily. I mean, the, yeah. the, the books of Moses themselves are very clear that this is an obligation for Israel. But then it also says this is to be something celebrated by the foreigner who lives in your midst. So while I am clear about saying 
that believers are no longer under a legal obligation to keep Mosaic law. Nevertheless, there is a pattern that the high that the holy days, all seven of them, the holy days establish a pattern that illustrate God's dealing with the human race. And so while no, you're not obligated, you're not, you don't lose an ounce of salvation by not keeping them, you are kept a pauper if you are unaware of these things which were so central to the life of Jesus and the apostles. We miss so much because we don't understand that. There's, um, I always remember the story of Eli's two sons who came with their, their flesh hooks and they would take the meat out of the seething pots and, and they got into trouble for that. But the verse that stands out to me there is that they they made it abhorrent for people to come and and worship and sacrifice before the Lord. See, from, from our point of view, from our 2,000 years of separation our, our Gentile point of view, your sacrifice is something that I have to do. Um, you know, I have to bring my sacrifice to God. Oh, I've got to give me another cow. You know, um, whereas the understanding really is it's it should be, it's a joyful celebration, but, but we don't see that. I think that's pretty intrinsic to you from the Jewish side of things, but we don't see that as, the, as a Gentile m- mindset. One of the... And and to the point that you just raised, one of the things I think in which particularly evangelicals misunderstand the orthodox traditional community is they imagine that uh, the people do these things out of drudgery, out of uh, some sort of um, obligation that they are uh, dreading. Well, they did in that when you get to the latter prophets, that's what they were doing. Yes, yes. Uh, certainly, there in biblical times, there were people who were just going through the motions. But at the same time today, if you're genuinely conversant with the traditional Jewish community, particularly with the, the, the mainstream, middle-of-the-road Orthodox community, sometimes we uh, in shorthand for them are the, the nit kippah people. Uh, for many of them, yeah. there is a real sincere desire to experience the joy of Hashem, to experience the joy that they see in the scriptures. Um, Certainly, without faith in Mashiach, without faith in Messiah Yeshua, it is certainly incomplete. But there, we we need to be careful not to paint people with a broad brush. When I went to uh, Israel uh, a couple of years ago, about four years ago, and uh, I spent time with uh, Israel Harel in uh, Galilee, who's become a, a great friend, and I wanted to look at the the sacrifices and understand that because, I mean, uh, again, from from our point of view, the, the the sacrifice means you get the cow, you put it on the altar, it gets turns to charcoal, and God's happy. But then when you read it, you go, no, actually, because some of it you're chopping a bit off and you're having the haunch to eat, and some of it the priests get some to eat, and, and some of the sacrifices only God gets. The, you know. And so I said to, to Israel, um, I said, help me to understand this. And he says, he says, well, surely you understand eating as part of worship. And I said, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And again, this is this two thousand years of separation. I said, I know, I know, eating as part of fellowship after worship, but eating as part of worship—that's that's a foreign, uh, a foreign concept. In in many of the seven holy days, there are specific prayers that are offered up, uh, thanking God for grain. 
there are the festival of uh, Shavuot. You take two loaves of risen bread, you bring the two loaves together, you lift it up to God, and you thank him for the grain and acknowledging that what you're about to eat is directly from his hand. So certainly that's an act of worship, acknowledging the source of your blessing. Yeah, and again, it's different. The, the, the Jewish blessing uh, with a meal, blessed are you, O Lord, you know, King of the universe who brings us this. Uh, the Gentile Christian uh, grace is thank you, God, for, you know, thank you, Jesus, for this food, mm-hmm. uh, it, which is a little bit different. It's a, it's a little sparse. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that one of the things that you'll see in, in Hebrew prayer is you say, Baruch Adonai, which the first phrase is, blessed are you, O Lord, our God. Then you say, Melech HaOlam, for you are king of the universe. Uh, and then you, for the, for instance, with the cup, um, you might say, Asher Kiddushana B'mitzvotav, who has made us sanctified by, by your truth, by your laws. And uh, then you might say, and has given us the commandment to either drink the wine or to have bread. Uh, the prayer for the bread is, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, the one who brings forth bread from the earth. Every time you eat, you acknowledge God as, first of all, the Lord who is in heaven, and then you acknowledge yep. his his work on earth of, of bringing forth grain. And, and this, the, this is part of the, uh, part of the, the meal. It's part of the sacrifices and yes. offerings. It's part of the feasts, uh, the, the joyous time. Uh, I remember reading in, um, uh, was it in, uh, it's either in Numbers or Deuteronomy, where, where the Lord says, with the tithe. And, and he says, if you live so far away from Jerusalem that it's actually impractical to bring your you know, 63 camels and 200 sheep in it, you know, then sell it where you are, take the money, come to Jerusalem, buy food, drink, and strong drink with your family and celebrate before the Lord. I'm going, hang on, this is my tithe? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is an act of worship there because, once again, if you do it as unto the Lord— that's the provision. Do it as unto the yes. Lord. In all things, you recognize that every good thing comes from Him. And not only that, not only do you pray before you eat the meal, you also pray after the meal. Most people don't know that there is a whole a long prayer that is said after the meal. Again, this is only done by the Orthodox, but they yeah. are faithful in doing this to acknowledge that what you've just had is a gift from God as well. See, now, what happens is it, I start to understand all this because I'm listening to Mottel and I'm listening to Arnold and I'm listening to whoever and, and whatever, and I'm going, I really want to be a part of that, and I'm looking around for a Talit and a Yamoko, and I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, do, do you know what I mean? This is, this, is, this is the danger of discovering this side of things is, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, is that now I want to immerse myself in the Jewishness of my faith. Yes, and that has, by itself, that step and that desire is not wrong. If you take it three more steps, 
and start to say, as I've heard a number in the Messianic movement do, they'll start to find fault with good Bible-believing churches. They'll start to find fault with excellent preachers who are faithful expositors of the Word of God. They'll start to find fault with certain Christian holidays that are blameless by themselves. And so that part of the Messianic movement, yes, they've gone overboard. And let me tell you, just between us kids, most of the people populating that corner of the movement are not Jewish. They seem to have swung. Here they were as Gentiles, knowing nothing about the Jewish roots of the faith, all of a sudden becoming enamored, and the pendulum swung past the, yeah. the, the logical center, and now they are incredible critics of the evangelical church. They'll warn people against—I get emails still almost every week by someone who, who only views maybe one or two of my videos, doesn't understand them all, but views one or two and tells me with pride, you'll be so proud of me. I stopped going to my Sunday church, and we are now holding oh, Sabbath services uh, because we, we want to get out of Babylon. And they, they expect me to respond to them with praise. <laughs> and I say to yeah. them, my response is, no, that's not a praiseworthy thing, because you think you're going to get it perfect? When you have the perfect congregation, let me know. Because if you're a member of it, you've just ruined it. <laughs> because there's That's no it. perfect people. We all get one thing or another. We, we don't give proper importance. We give too much weight. And so for believers, there is no other expectation than to be in fellowship and to be in under the headship of a of some local elders in a local assembly of believers, there is no excuse for that. And I'll tell you, I am tired of hearing believers um, whine and and give excuses why they're not married. And this is these are folks who have recently become involved in the messianic movement. And they'll say, "Oh, there's not a church that celebrates the feasts, so I'm leaving them." Well, the reality is but the feasts are only one of many things that we're commanded to do. So if you understand the feasts and you're capable of teaching, put the material in front of the pastor and the elders, show them, spread it out, let them know what you'd like to teach. And if they're ready to, to go with that, then, then you be the one who is able to introduce some of these things, but not as an act of rebellion against some good Bible-believing congregations. I like that picture of the pendulum because I think what's happened is instead of letting that pendulum go forward and come back and then find its center, we've we've let it go from the the, the Gentile side, call it Christianity, and it's it's swung down. We've discovered the the Jewish roots of our faith, and it's gone way up here. We've gone, oh, this is cool. We've pinned it up on this side instead of allowing it to find. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a worship leader. I love worship leading. And uh, when I was pastoring the church in Kati Kati, uh, we would introduce quite a few different songs right. in Hebrew. So we'd sing songs in Hebrew. And I know that some of the church members were very uh, scared 
about what would happen when I spent the six and a half weeks in Israel. Uh, and so the first thing I said when I came back, I said, I said, we don't have to sing songs in Hebrew. We're going to keep singing the occasional song in Hebrew, but let's sing them in the language that we know and understand, which is English. And there was this, I think there was this audible sigh of relief. Um, but, but it's like, let, let's not pin that pendulum way up here. Let's let the pendulum find its mm-hmm. center and this balance between the very, very Jewishness of my faith and the very Gentileness, the reality that I am a Gentile, not a Jew, and, and that right. Jesus came to make one new man. And that's the, that's the balance that we need to seek. But, you know, we live in a world that's so driven by trends and so driven by the latest thing that uh, there, it's not glamorous uh, to live a, a balanced center. But just as a word of encouragement, I know that in many areas of the world, the only expression they see of, of messianic movement is, is a loony expression, is a, a really off-balance expression. But there do exist many, many dozens and dozens and dozens of messianic congregations that are sound and balanced in doctrine. I have friends who lead several of them, and it really doesn't matter if they call it a messianic synagogue or a messianic fellowship or whether the the leader calls himself the rabbi or the pastor. Really, those are minor things. The question to ask is, are they followers and teachers of the teachings of our Jewish Messiah? And if so, then for a good Messianic congregation and a good conservative evangelical church where the scriptures are taught in their entirety, then there's not yeah. going to be a whole lot of difference as far as the doctrinal conclusions they come to. I spoke on the weekend, uh, the church that I'm involved with, the uh, some, one of the elders chooses the messages for you, and uh, what he chose for me was to preach from Hebrews that Jesus is a better high priest. And uh, I, did, you know, yes. I went into the background and I said, you know, Hebrews, Hebrews was written uh, probably just a few years before the temple was destroyed. And as somebody once said, with the wanderings of the Israelites, you know, it took one day for God to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And the same thing has been said regarding the whole mosaic system. It took one day with Jesus dying on the cross to rid mankind of the mosaic system, but it took 40 years to get Moses out of the Israelites. Um, I'm just wondering, from from your point of view, just, just on that Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, you know, an Israelite of the Israelites. How much struggle, we know he did struggle, he went off to Arabia for a number of years to to work it out, but how much struggle do you think Paul had with this whole concept of the Mosaic law being done away with? We tend to have selection bias. I'm about to teach a course this summer at the Ariel School on how to study the Bible. And I'm going to confront folks and confront myself as well with the whole phenomenon of selection bias. We tend to, to read the verses that already agree with our theology, and we tend to ignore the verses that don't agree with our theology. And so that selection bias happens with Paul. Paul said, the Mosaic law is good, holy, and just, but Messiah is better. (laughs) 
So there's nothing yes. wrong with the law. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. It can't be. It comes from God. The, the, the problem with the law is that we are bad and we can't keep it. It's God's perfect standard. So I, I would never say the law is bad. Even the Apostle Paul said it's good, holy, and just. But yeah. not being able to keep it, God condescended to give us an open door, and that open door was to remind us that law was not given in perpetuity. It was given to one nation, the nation of Israel, and given until the coming of Mashiach. Yeah, I think what a lot of people miss out on, they forget. I mean, when we look at the Bible types, we know that Passover is the original type of Jesus's sacrifice for us Amen. as the perfect Lamb of God. The Bible teaches us that the Israelites passing through the Red Sea is a type of our baptism into Christ. It teaches that the giving of the law at Sinai is symbolic of the giving of the Holy Spirit. You go, well, hang on, the law was given 50 days after they were saved. It was, it was never a process of being saved. They were saved out of Egypt, and then afterwards God says, well, now that you're mine, this is how we're supposed to behave. I think that um, it's important not to make those supposed types um, some point of holy doctrine. I think some yep. of the points that you just raised, some of those the three points, some of them have more validity, while one or two of them are a bit of a stretch. And okay. they are a stretch in a devotional uh, direction. And that's not of necessity wrong, but we need to limit ourselves doctrinally to what the scriptures actually teach. Because when, when you start making doctrine out of types, you're starting to skate on ice that's getting progressively thinner. And um, it's important to recognize that these types will only take you so far and better to, to rely upon the actual didactic statements of Scripture regarding doctrine, of which there are plenty in the epistles. We have the, the instruction, the epistles were written to the church, and so if we want to see what are the instruction to us as believers, it's right there in the epistles. Mm. The, uh, we talked about the feasts a little bit earlier. We better get back to this Hanukkah and Christmas thing. But uh, I know Chuck Missler taught that, and, I, and I've done this myself, is, is that the feasts line up with the ancient Jewish betrothal processes. Where's your feeling on that? You know, I, I think he, he, wonderful man, wonderful teacher. I think that really takes it a little bit further than, than the, it's paved. That, that road doesn't get paved all that way. Uh, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Um, I haven't seen some of the points, and I've, I've seen people try to work it out. I think it's far more reliable. You're on safer ground. The road is paved if you point out that all seven feasts have a direct fulfillment in the person of Messiah and in the process of his establishment of his congregation. And I, that's a little bit of a, a shift from what Chuck Missler is saying, um, but I think too much is read into the whole betrothal process, and we start to, the line between uh, what is interpretation and what is application gets a little fuzzy. 
And so I think we need to stay on safer ground by, for instance, saying that Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, finds its fulfillment in the sacrifice of Jesus as the Passover lamb. The next feast, the, the third feast, the Feast of First Fruits, finds its fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus as the first yes. fruits of the resurrection, and so forth and so on. If you look here at a list of the seven feasts, and you look here at a list of how they were all fulfilled, it is a one-to-one correspondence. And that's how yeah. I would prefer to see it. And I think we stay on safer ground if we recognize in the person of Jesus and the development of his congregation, his body of believers, there are some direct fulfillments of the seven Levitical feasts. So this comes into, uh, similar to the verse where it says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. It's the, the fulfillment of all this is in Jesus. And, and that's got to be our focus, or he's got to be our focus. It's not, oh, let's focus on this. If, if, if you, you go off on that track, and and I, I've I've got to admit I'm, I I ear a little bit towards um, towards uh, Missler's understanding in this one, so uh, I look forward to going debating back and forth with you on at some point. But the focus has got to be on Jesus Christ. I fully concur. Ultimately, these holidays, these holy days of Leviticus, find their greatest expression as they work their way out, not to just one tribe but rather to all of humanity. And so while we we need not make the mistake of imagining that their meaning to Israel is insignificant, uh, in doing the process of exegesis, of of deriving meaning from the Scripture, we don't want to be guilty of extra Jesus. We don't want to be guilty of, of pushing Jesus into every verse somehow, and that because that's the more pious thing to do. Uh, you know, you can be pious, and you can be conservative, and you can be evangelical without forcing Jesus into every verse. At the same time, the statement that you just make, with every fiber of my being, I wholeheartedly support the idea that the ultimate focus is the person of the Messiah. I, amen. Yeah, because every Amen. knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So let's go back to the statement of yours on the video. And I can't remember the first part of it. I think you said something like, without Passover, there wouldn't be Easter. Without Hanukkah, there wouldn't be Christmas. And I thought, well, now that's interesting because I know the, the Passover-Easter connection, but Hanukkah to Christmas? Well, just uh, because some of your viewers at this point are genuinely scratching their heads, here's a, a quick uh, <laughs> you know, Reader's Digest version. Um, Hanukkah is a post-biblical holiday. In other words, it's not found in the books of, in the book of Leviticus. It's not found um, later on in the biblical text, because the biblical text ends around the year 450 BC, whereas the events that are commemorated with with the holiday of Hanukkah happened in the year 163 BC. So they happen after the canon of the Old Testament is closed. But very simply, um, if we follow the rise and the fall of empires, we know that the Babylonians were the third world empire, the Persians were the fourth world empire, and Alexander the Great and his Greek armies uh, were the fifth world empire. Uh, Alexander died in a drunken stupor at age 33, 
and his four generals divided up his empire. Uh, one of the generals was named Seleucus. He took over Syria and the northern part of Israel. And this guy was a real Hellenist. He wanted everyone under his authority, and, and later it became his, his descendants. He wanted everyone under his authority to bow down to the Greek gods and goddesses. Ultimately, that led uh, future Seleucid kings to impose a rule on Israel that they could no longer worship the God of heaven, they could no longer worship Jehovah, but rather they had to bow down to Grecian idols. And so Greek soldiers would bring these idols from town to town. And uh, the story goes in the book of Maccabees when they came to the little town of Modi'in, which is uh, just north of Jerusalem. Uh, Modi'in was populated by some folks who uh, uh, had served at one time as priests in the temple. And while the soldiers had success in some places getting Jewish people to bow down to the idols, in Modi'in there was a godly old priest by the name of Mattathias, and he had five sons who were called the Maccabees. And when the Greek soldiers tried to pull this bow down and worship business, aged Mattathias staggered forward in his weakness, grabbed the sword out of the scabbard of one of the soldiers, raised the sword and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, follow me. And with that, he brought the, the sword down on the head of one of the Greek soldiers. And all of his five sons were looking and saying, oh, no, Pop, Dad, what, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> but at this point, <laughs> they had no choice. They also yep. grabbed swords, and they had to defend their father. And so the rebellion was on. The rebellion went from town to town to town until finally, end of story, they got to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, when they finally cleared out the Grecian Syrian soldiers, they were horrified to find that the Greeks had been putting a statue of Zeus in the temple and had been sacrificing a pig on the altar. And so they rededicated the temple to God. And the word dedication in Hebrew, uh, there's a root from which we get the, the word Hanukkah. They rededicated the yeah. temple to God, the year 163. And supposedly there are legends of what happened. Um, on that day. And one of the legends... That's the legends of the oil, isn't it? Yeah. I have here a Hanukkah, a normal menorah that was in the temple had three branches on either side, three branches. And so when the Maccabees rededicated the temple to God, in faith, they looked around, they, they tried to find oil, but they only had one jar of oil. It was a one-day supply. It would have lit the Hanukkah, I'm sorry, it would have lit the menorah in the temple, the temple menorah, which had, again, three yeah. branches on either side. It would have lit it. It was a one-day supply of oil. And then they had to run up into the hills, press some olives. It is seven and a half, eight-day process of, of refining and pressing the oil. And supposedly, the legend says that instead of lasting just one day, the oil lasted eight days. And so from that, we have 
the eight nights of Hanukkah. So on the first night of Hanukkah, you'd only have one candle. All of these other holders, all of these others would be empty. On oh, the first be empty? night of Hanukkah, yep. you would have just this one candle and then a candle in the center. So you'd have the servant candle here in the middle, and then at the end, you'd have one candle. It burns out within a few hours. The second night, you'd have two candles. Third night, until the eighth night of Hanukkah, you have eight candles burning brightly, signifying that every day the miracle got greater and greater. So Hanukkah yeah. has become a very, very popular holiday in Jewish circles today. So how does that point towards Christmas? Okay. So let's imagine for a moment that the Syrian soldiers were successful in convincing all of the Jewish people to abandon the worship of Hashem, of, of the God of Israel, of the God yep. of creation, that all of you Jewish people were glad. Let's, let's put ourselves in the place of these Grecian Syrian soldiers. We're glad that you've seen the error of your ways. You prefer these beautiful statues of Zeus and Aphrodite. And now you've gotten with the togas. We're all wearing togas now. And yep. we're all walking like Greeks. And uh, you're, you're, it's modern times. It's the year 163 BC. And you've forgotten all about this Jehovah. If that would have happened, the Jewish people would have completely assimilated into the pagan culture around them. Once that you have true. the Jewish people assimilating into the pagan culture around them, you have no more family of David. If you have no more family of David, the dynasty or the dynasty, I'm sorry, this is New Zealand, of the dynasty of David, you have no more dynasty of David, then who's going to give birth to the Messiah? Mary's ancestors would have been intermarried yep. to who knows who, idol worshippers. You have no Mary and Joseph, and there's no baby Jesus in a manger. Right. Without Hanukkah, the, there would not have been a Christmas. It's interesting, the whole uh, Hellenization of the Jewish people, because we know that the, 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 there was that big split uh, amongst the Jewish people in those days, some of the, that that were even reversed circumcision of the you know, um, but I look at the church today, and if if I can stretch the types, and we can look at the Hellenization of the church today, which is becoming so very very worldly that at times it's 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 difficult to mm -hmm. say where is the difference between the world and the church and. In, in my mind, when I'm looking at eschatologically, I'm looking at end times, I'm going, is this a symbol of, you know, so, same as the, the whole Maccabean thing uh, happened before the coming of Messiah the first time. Is this Hellenization, this worldliness of the church, is that a sign of the coming of Messiah the second time? Those are, those are very fair parallels to draw. I mean, it, it's very clear that uh, increasingly, People who are in the church give excuses for why they're not going to act any different. Whereas if you read the New Testament narratives, it was clear that uh, the, the Jesus believers were in many ways very different from the surrounding culture. So it does give you pause. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And when you read that, you realize that half the trouble that the, uh, half the reason why the Christians got into trouble 
in those New Testament days was because they weren't like the rest of the world. Yes, and uh, they stood out. And in a sense, that was really the, the, one of the, the main reasons that so many people were attracted to them. There were all kinds of cults and all kinds of groups that worshipped minor deities in that time that promised you know, health and wealth uh, if you would join their group. But the, 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 the way that the believers, the genuine believers, acted toward one another showed that there was a heart change that had gone on with them. And that's something that couldn't be faked. It couldn't be pretend. It was real. And people were drawn to it. Now, I think there is a lesson for us today that uh, you know all of the all of the uh, Hollywood tricks that are used these days to try to draw people into church buildings. Um, you just a lot of wood, hay, and stubble, a lot of foolishness. Because once you, the tricks are over, why should they stay? What have you got yeah. for me? What have you done for me lately? <laughs> would be a well, Webber found that out with the with the seeker friendly services, didn't he? He eventually turned around and, and apologized. He says, "No, we got it wrong." That's the way a lot of churches have found it to be. That if they tried to act like a circus, people were coming to expect a circus. Uh, people don't need more circuses because the world, with all of its special effects, can put on a lot bigger circuses than than we are ever going to do. And we have a message of life that the world does not have. Yeah. There are some people watching and listening to this uh, model that um, are probably just beginning the journey of understanding. Uh, we use the, the Jewishness of our faith. Is there a resource that you would point people to as a starting resource? A- apart from the New Testament, of course. You know. Sure. Both um, in New Zealand and in Australia, there are a number of organizations that stock books right there that can be ordered, you know, either from New Zealand or Australia. Uh, Of course, the two organizations that come to mind would be uh, Celebrate Messiah, um, and they are active both, I believe, in Australia and New Zealand, and Ariel Ministries, which is also active in both Australia and New Zealand. Both of those organizations, I believe they even have the new uh, 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 websites that are either um, oriented or come out of New Zealand and Australia, where books can be ordered locally. But I would recommend the book as a starter entitled Jesus Was a Jew. Jesus Was a Jew by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and that should be available probably from either of those two fine organizations. It is a simple paperback, about 120 pages, and it really speaks to the title, Jesus Was a Jew, and it gives you a little bit of an introduction to that Jewish background, while at the same time remaining fully doctrinally sound, fully doctrinally evangelical and conservative, never compromises that. Um, If you are already a member of a good, solid Bible-believing church, no, it doesn't it's not there to change your doctrine, but rather it's there to give you an amazing introduction to a part of your faith history that you need to be introduced to. 
So Jesus was a Jew by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, yeah. I was, I was scared you were going to recommend Yeshua for a moment because that's like a <laughs> – that's not it's, a little book. A, that's yes. a big book. It's that's a, an it's amazing It's a large book, book and the, the abridged edition of Yeshua, even the abridged edition is some five, six hundred pages. But I would simply yeah. recommend Jesus was a Jew. It's the same author as the Jesus Yeshua was book. A Jew. Jesus was a Jew yeah. is a, a simply an excellent book, um, and it's available from all of the uh, all of the ministries down there in Australia, New Zealand, yeah. and it is a good place uh, to start. Uh, you can understand that it his faith is the same as your faith. If you are a Bible, it turns the lights on, doesn't it? it Oh my goodness! I, when I when I speak, sometimes I use um, you. You'll be aware of Peter Jackson, our, our very famous filmmaker. He was asked by the British archives to take World War One war footage and and work the Weta magic on it. And so what he's done is he's put it through the computers. He's slowed it down. It's less jerky. He's put color to it. He even went as far as finding forensic lip readers to figure out what the people on the film were saying. And so he's put sound to it, where horses are going through a, uh, like, like putting a, a carriage through a river. He's gone out and uh, recorded that. He's had that. So, and one of the interviewers that said when, um, when he was interviewing Peter Jackson on this, he says, did you feel like you just pierced it and it all came out, that it was all in there originally and all you had to do was pierce the film and all of this came out? And to me, when I'm, when I'm discovering that, that the Jewish foundations of Christianity, that's what it's like. It becomes in color and sound, and you just go, wow, that was pretty cool before, but now this is really amazing. And it was there all the time. It was there all the time. <laughs> you didn't have to invent it. Uh, you didn't have to patch it together from anything. You simply had to peel back the layers of, of Christendom uh, and there's nothing wrong with being a Christian. We are all Christians if we're followers of Jesus. But over the years, layers of church tradition obscured the original church. The original yeah. church was made up of, of Jewish men and women who were waiting and longing for the arrival of their Messiah. When Yeshua arrived, they recognized that this is the Holy One of Israel, and then they had the opportunity to tell non-Jewish friends that what he did for us, he can do for you as well, because God is no respecter of persons. He's not willing that any should perish. That's right. Model, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking. Wonderful. We'll have to do Good it again. To see you, everyone. Be well. Be well. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you for watching and for listening. And uh, just a reminder, if you want to find out more about Model, you uh, click the links below or above, depending on which uh, system you're watching on. Remember to subscribe and like and click the bell and everything so that you're notified when the next podcast is there. God bless you.